0: Live from Sydney, this is General Ike, Building Jerusalem. Our guest today is Associate Professor Salvatore Bermenez. Salvatore is an Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of Sydney. His specialty is in Comparative Sociology with a focus on America and China. His next book, is called The New Authoritarianism, Trump, Populism, and the Tyranny of Experts. Salvador, it's an honor to have you on the show.
1: It's an honor to be on the show. Thank you.
0: I want to start with uh, a headline that recently has been trending quite highly uh, from Business Insider. China's social credit system has blocked people from taking 11 million flights and 4 million train trips. Um, The social credit systems now rolling out in China. What's your take on them?
1: Well, first, I don't know if I can trust the statistics from Business Insider. Business Insider is a you know a, a bit of a questionable source, so I haven't actually investigated this article myself. Uh, but the social credit system behind that article is something very real and uh, you know for many people very scary. It's uh, you know essentially a government-sponsored system to rate people, uh, similar in the way that Western credit agencies give people credit scores, but instead they're giving uh, scores to everyone in the population based on their behavior. And that could mean everything from, you know do you pay your bills on time, uh, but also things like, uh, do you have any traffic tickets uh, or at the more you know, extreme edge that we're all much more concerned about, have you been identified uh, in protests? Have you been saying anything uh, you know, prohibited on social media? Uh, we don't really know the criteria. You know The government has not published any criteria. These are all the, the sorts of things we suspect that are going into the social credit system. But really, who knows? Uh, some computers in Beijing know, the rest of us don't.
0: Oof. Is it as terrifying as it sounds?
1: Well, you know, I think it's only terrifying if it's in the hands of a, a government you of which you don't approve. So, you know, put a system like this in the hands of a totalitarian communist regime like China's and we say, oh, that's incredibly scary. But, you know, put a system like this in the hands of private American companies and it's business as usual, right? (laughs) So, uh, you know, many people don't realize we already have essentially these kind of social uh, credit systems, uh, at least in the United States, uh, less so in, in other uh, Western countries because other countries have stronger data privacy rules, or in the case of Australia, it's just too small a market uh, to have attracted this attention yet. Uh, mm-hmm. But in the United States, you know, everyone goes into databases managed by firms like uh, Axiom and, uh, you know, and credit rating agencies where uh, they call all information that's available about you and put it into scores for companies. But it, it's being used by companies, you uh, you know, on the sly, behind the scenes, instead of being used by a government up front and in public. So it gets a lot less press.
0: So is it is this like a, a difference in kind or just a difference in scale?
1: I think it's both. Uh, it's a difference in kind because it's a little more comprehensive. You know, Western uh, data companies are culling all public records on you. So for, insta- for instance, if you've been arrested, that's a public record. Even if you were never convicted of any crime, the, you know, the arrest goes into the system. Uh, you know, I'm not sure what they can pick up, if they can go down to the level of parking tickets and such. I don't know if those are a matter of public record. Certainly if you appeal them, it becomes a matter of public record. Uh, you know, your behavior online is a matter of public record that can be, or private record, I should say, that can be skimmed off uh, databases like Facebook's and Twitter's, as we saw in the Cambridge Analytica scandal. Uh, So all this data is out there and it's being used by private firms in the West. Um, But the Chinese government has much deeper access to data on its citizens uh, than Western companies have on us. Uh, And of course, it's on a a larger scale. It's it's being done at a a national scale for more than a billion people, uh, as opposed to you know, these Western firms focus mainly on the US uh, and even then mainly on specific purposes, Uh, you know, so it's not a, you know, I I think that the application of the system of of credit scoring systems in the West is much more limited. Uh, You know, so for example, uh, you know, I can still buy a train ticket, even if I have a poor credit score, <laughs> but right. in, in China, the government could not allow you to buy a train ticket. It's really up to them, and so I think you know both the types the, the types of data that can be captured in China are uh, more comprehensive, and the uses to which credit scores can be put in China are also uh, much wider.
0: Is is there any way that this doesn't lead to what I guess you instantly envision as the worst case scenario here?
1: Well, you tell me what the worst case scenario is, thermonuclear war, I don't see a connection. Uh, but, you know, what worst case scenarios are you talking about?
0: Um, well, it seems like at, at a certain point, very quickly, you'd essentially train the entire populace to to what aggressively focus on their social credit score to the exclusion of-
1: Well, I think that many- uh, social engineers in the Chinese bureaucracy might say that's exactly what we want. Uh, You know, do you, if you want to, well, let me take an example from Australia. Uh, Australia in some states at least has speed cameras and speed cameras on highways are there to, you know, essentially coerce people's behavior into not speeding. They're not there to punish speeders, they're there to shape behavior towards not speeding. Uh, but they're highly controversial, right? So volume, since we live in a democracy, uh, voters in Australia routinely pressure <laughs> politicians to have fewer speed cameras and you know, not to watch their speed. Now, as a you know, social policy expert, I always say speed cameras are fantastic. We don't want anyone speeding ever. And so every piece of road everywhere should have a speed camera, and we should have total surveillance of the roads. What's more, we have, we have the technology that we could have uh, engines or cars reporting back continuously to government on speeds people are driving on what roads they're driving. And we could continuously find people for speeding on every road where they exceed the speed limit. And we have the technology to do this very sure. easily. Uh, Google could do it. Google, you know, anyone who's using a GPS, Google knows whether or not they're speeding. Um, but we don't do it uh, because there are strong democratic pressures to limit it. Now, I think it's clear that it, it would be good social policy to have that kind of surveillance and uh, uh, that kind of surveillance and behavior modification going on because it would reduce road deaths. It, it would, you know, make. Driving much easier and safer, we reduce levels of road rage and frustration. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it comes at a uh, cost in privacy. You know, these kind of abstract uh, goods, like like privacy and um, you know the 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 feeling person the feeling of personal autonomy. Right, the, these are reduced. Do we want people having the personal autonomy to speak? that's one for the philosophers. <laughs> for a social, pro- social policy standpoint, it'd be great if people did not have the personal autonomy to speed. And I think that's what China is mainly talking about. There's most of what China is trying to do with the social credit system is shape behavior so that people obey traffic signals, so that people uh, pay their rent on time, so that people you know, do the things they're supposed to do that make society operate, where that gets Problematic is, of course, where it's used to punish behavior that I, as a liberal, would like, but the Chinese government, as a totalitarian communist regime, does not like. So, for example, if it's used to punish illegal protesting against government policies, mm-hmm. well, you know, like many uh, you know liberals, I would say, fantastic, people are protesting against government policies, but from the Chinese government's perspective. All it's trying to do is discourage illegal behavior, and you know I I think we have to have a sense of perspective on that. That uh, you know my value system and the value system of the Chinese government are fundamentally different, and I don't embrace their value system, uh, but I understand that it's different from mine, uh, and I understand that you know they're using this social score credit system uh, to. Nudge or guide behavior uh, to be in line with their value system. You know, I mean, look, it's a terrible thing if you're denied the ability to board a train, but it's much worse if secret police come to your home and you know take you away and beat you up and dump you in a, a field somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm much more scared about secret police beating me up than I am about being prohibited from boarding a plane. Uh, you know, if if we're going to live in a world where dissidents come under government pressure, mm-hmm. well in some sense, much better world in which they're prohibited from boarding trains than a world in which you know, their children are abducted and threatened in order to uh, ensure cooperative behavior. Cool. Well, but that's the old reality, right? I mean, what, 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 are, what are people doing in Russia? I mean, let, let's compare China and Russia. What is Russia doing to ensure uh, that people who, dissidents from the regime, uh, don't challenge it too publicly and that you know that people don't exercise uh, their ability to protest. Well, Russia is throwing people in jail, uh, having them raped in jail, is poisoning them, as we saw in the Scrivel case in the UK. Yeah, okay. uh, you know, so Russia's behavior towards dissidents is, you know, much more physically threatening uh, than uh, than China's in this case. Now, China also. You know, has a poor record of uh, treatment of dissidents, but you know, I, again, I, I, I encourage a sense of perspective. Uh, I don't want social scoring for my own society, but I also don't want private firms collecting this information either. I mean, in my ideal world, you know, no one would have this systematic these systematic databases on me. I
0: hear it. Um, okay, so to sort of zoom zoom out a bit more, you describe yourself as a, a having a focus on comparative sociology. Right. Was that something that you uh, trained for deliberately from a young age, or was that something, a, a sort of specialty you came into?
1: Well, at a young age, I didn't even know sociology existed. <laughs> I would say I discovered sociology uh, in college, uh, you know, in US university level. Uh, and I'd say comparative sociology appealed to me right from the beginning. The, the idea that we can learn from using different societies as uh, as comparison cases to help us learn about each other. So, you know, what I've just been talking about comparing uh, privacy in the US, China, and Russia, you know, I think that's really important for contextualization. You know, a philosopher might ask whether or not China's social uh, credit system is, you know, right or acceptable in some way. But as a sociologist, I'd like to ask, yeah. Well, how does it compare to what other countries are doing? How does it compare to you know, what's happening in places that you know, I accept? Uh, you know, I mean, I had I talked to a uh, Polish journalist once about uh, the Polish government's attempts to uh, make it more difficult for women to get an abortion, and she said yeah, that just shows that Poland is no longer a democracy. And I said, well, abortion's illegal in Queensland. <laughs> you know, I mean. Maybe Queensland is not a democracy, I don't know, but you have to have a sense of perspective. If you know, having, that comparative, uh, having that comparative angle on your understanding of the world allows you to put into perspective what's possible, what's reasonable, you know, what can be done, what should be done in the real world. It gets away from philosophical absolutes and pushes us towards you know, pragmatic policy making. Mm-hmm.
0: Do you find that coming at problems from a, from a perspective of comparative sociology frequently leads you to uh, very different conclusions to what people around you are drawing?
1: Um, I think so. Uh, you know, I think most sociologists even do not take or fail to take a comparative perspective in their research. So they only study one country. And by studying one country, uh, they really don't get, I think, a... A feel or an intuition for the variety, you know, the huge variety of social forms that exist mm-hmm. in the world. Uh, you know, I mean, a, a classic example is, is is inequality in Australia too high, too low, or just right. Well, it's hard to know if you don't have experience of other societies. Uh, you know, how much inequality is right or wrong or desirable. You only really know by looking at other societies and seeing, you know, how their uh, societies look, what kind of social problems they have. Uh, you know, try to uh, to understand your own society in that context of the range of what's possible. And you get the range of what's possible by looking at other societies. But no, I, I don't think even sociologists don't do that enough. Uh, certainly non-sociologists rarely do it at all.
0: Well, while we're on the subject of uh, inequality specifically, I remember you mentioning that inequality started shifting gear in America in the 70s, right. and there's been a sort of cascade since then. Right. Could, you, could you explain like in general overview, like how that got started and what's happening now?
1: Uh, inequality in the United States has increased dramatically over the last 40 years. Uh, the inflection point seems to have been right around 1968 to 72. Uh, the lowest level of inequality ever in American society, as far as we know, was right around 1970. Uh, up until that point, for 100 years, we have relatively good data that between 1870 and 1970, inequality consistently declined. Uh, workers, workers consistently had better and better standards of living compared to the country as a whole. That, that is, workers' wages rose faster than national income, uh, right. meaning that a greater and greater proportion of the rewards of society went to ordinary workers, and a smaller and smaller percentage went to the tiny elite. Since 1973, that trend has completely reversed. Uh, and in fact, over the last 45 years, there has been virtually, well, actually, not virtually no, there has been no increase in uh, median wages, the wages of average workers, uh, in 45 years. So 45 years? For 45 years. For 45 years. Uh, there's been a slight decrease over the last 45 years, uh, which means that literally all of the gains. All of the gains a doubling of GDP per capita in the United States in the last 45 years—all of that gain has gone to the well, for, to the top half arithmetically, but really to the top 10 percent, and since 2001 or so, to the top 1 percent or even 0.1 percent. Uh, there's been a dramatic shift in the U.S., and th- this you know, really is reflected in the uh, you know the famous book by uh, uh, Piketty. Uh, on inequality uh, or capital in the 21st century really gets at this by pointing out the return of entire industries that had previously ceased to exist. So, for example, the the servant industry. Uh, Nobody in the 20th century had servants, you know, Mm -hmm. cooks, cleaners, nannies. Uh, In the 19th century, rich people took it for granted. I mean, any middle class person, if you've seen Mary Poppins, you know, I mean, Mr. Banks has a You know, stay at home wife, and he has a nanny for his two kids, and he has a cook, and he has a cleaner in his house, right? And that's meant to be a representation of, you know, middle class London life. Um, Of course, that all disappeared, you know, in the mid 20th century. Virtually nobody had servants, but now servants are returning. So that once again, bankers in places like London and New York typically have a nanny for each child. A nanny Uh, for each child. A nanny for each child. Sometimes those nannies are actually qualified nurses. So it's become a fashion, despite the nurse shortage, it's become the fashion to have nurses as nannies. Uh, They have cleaners, of course. Now they're more likely to have a cleaning service than a live-in cleaner. In other places, though, for instance, in Singapore, live-in cleaners are the norm. And in Singapore, it's now considered an expected part of middle-class life that, of course, you will have a cleaner who lives in, your apartment, uh, if you're middle class. I mean, not if, obviously not if you're poor or working class. Um, I mean, you know, so the cleaners if, don't have cleaners. The cleaners don't have cleaners. No, They're right. absolutely not. Uh, when I say middle class, I don't mean the average person. I mean a member of the professional class, <clears> someone <throat> with a university education and a professional job. Okay. Uh, you know, so this resurgence of the service servant industry, not the service industry, the servant industry uh, really is indicative of the fact that today uh, in countries like the United States, United Kingdom, Australia, Singapore, uh, well-off people make multiples of the incomes of working class people. And thus a well-off person, upper middle class person can afford to have two or three working class people as personal servants, uh, you know, there's no other way to describe a cook, a cleaner, a nanny. They're all personal servants.
0: And so, the resurgence of like personal servants is a strong indication. It's a
1: strong indication because it shows that you know, if I'm going to if I'm going to to employ a personal servant, it must mean I'm making at least four or five times as much as a working class person because my salary has to support an entire other person's salary. Right. You know, and if I have two or three servants, two or three other person's salaries based on my own salary, plus having, of course, an excess for me to live, you know, and live a nice life. So, you know, it, it shows that that upper middle class people and, of course, the rich are now making multiples of what uh, working class people make. And, and of course, and I want to stress it to the upper middle class. I mean, the very rich, of course, have also become very rich-er. Mm-hmm. Uh, CEO pay, for example, has increased by uh, well by a multiple of 10, that is from being about 30 times the average worker in their firm to being about 300 times the average worker in right. their firm. Uh, so the rich have done even better. But, but I, I always want to remind people when they say, you know, uh, you know, kill the capitalists, take down the 1%, et cetera, et cetera, that, that really most people engage in these sorts of debates most upper middle class people uh, are the people who have benefited from rising inequality. What do you
0: mean engage in these sorts of debates?
1: Well, the, the debates over inequality. If you go down to if you'd gone down to Zuccotti Square when Occupy New York was on, it wasn't full of uh, working class agitators. Mm-hmm. Uh, Zuccotti Square was full of upper middle class Ivy League university graduates uh, who did their very noble. Or three months in Zuccotti Squared. I'm not criticizing them for doing it. I think it's wonderful that they did it. And then went on to jobs in software engineering or public relations or banking or management consulting. Uh, and that's not and I don't mean to criticize them at all. I mean, I it they did much more than I do mm-hmm. uh, to fight inequality. But I think we should remember that most of us who are privileged enough to be uh, writing in magazines, to be publishing in journals, to be interviewed on TV, uh, to be you know interviewed on podcasts. Most of us who are privileged to ha- be in this debate are people who have benefited from rising mm-hmm. inequality. You know, I may be uh, advocating for policies that reduce inequality, but I'm a member. Not of the one percent. I'm a member of the ten percent. And if I hadn't chosen to go into academia, I'd definitely be a member of the one percent. That is, if I were still working in in finance or management consulting, like I was fifteen years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's not. You know, I want to always remind people who are, you know, engaged in this debate or might be listening to this podcast. It's not about a few super wealthy people. It's about all of us who have good university degrees and professional employment. You know, all of us have benefited immensely. Mm-hmm. from the economic changes of the last 40 or 50 years.
0: Okay, so, so that all makes sense to me. Um, to, to bring it back down to its, its root, 1973, yeah. what changes? Why does, why does the trend of 100 years suddenly flip?
1: That is a massive debate. Okay. Uh, my own opinion is that what changed was ideology, that there was a successful effort on the part of very rich Americans to change the terms of the debate. Uh, and to argue that uh, workers' rights had simply gone too far, and it was time to turn back the clock. Uh, they, uh, you know, conservatives have always wanted to turn back the clock. That's what being a conservative means. But in nineteen, in the early nineteen seventies, they won, and, and I think they won because the nineteen sixties were such a decade of outrageous disorder. Mm-hmm. You know, the hippie movement, the anti-war protests, the you know, the university closures, you know, the, you know, the, the overturning of existing orders in society, the civil rights movement, the women's rights movement, uh, and that that sense of disorder uh, opened the way for conservatives to come in with what they peddled as a solution to say, well, if you don't want all of this disorder, let's have some good conservative policies that put people back in their place. Those policies were policies that made it much more difficult for people to form a union. Mm -hmm. Uh, Policies that made it uh, much easier for corporations to fire people. Uh, Policies that uh, made it easier for, uh, that reduced the incentive for corporations to offer uh, benefits like retirement benefits and health benefits. Uh, you know, we got a whole series of policies in the United States and the United Kingdom and then spreading to the rest of the world in the 1970s and in the early 1980s uh, that shifted this debate. And and then, of course, the big one is a reduction in tax rates. You you know, in the United States, the top tax bracket in the 1960s was 90%. So if you were someone of very high income on your last dollar, you paid 90% in taxes. Uh, That came down ultimately under Ronald Reagan all the way down to 28%. It's since bounced back up to, depending on how you count Medicare tax, but something like 41.5%. So it's now reached more of a, a medium. Uh, but it came down dramatically. You know, the, the top tax rates came down from you know, virtually all your income would go in taxes, uh, which both reduced inequality and reduced the incentive to seek high incomes since, you know, if you're being taxed at 90%, right. why push hard to get a higher income? Did people- you know,
0: Still push hard to get higher. Income? I don't
1: know. I, I, that's 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 a great unanswerable because I can't go back and talk to people in, in 1968. Uh, but I do know that top incomes are much lower. You know? Right. Uh, and certainly, if your top, if your incomes being taxed at 90 percent on the margin,
0: yeah,
1: you know the incentive for you to push for that extra bonus must be reduced. Now, now I say that my own explanation is that it has to do with with policy changes, but other people point to globalization, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, some people also say that the entry of women into the workforce uh, dramatically expanded the labor supply. Uh, right. Uh, you know, if I were to to rank these as credibility, I would say. For me, policy changes, one, globalization probably had some impact, and women entering the labor force had virtually no impact.
0: Really? Uh,
1: but other people have different rankings.
0: Okay. Could, could you unpack um, for a moment why, first of all, like globalization as a, as a factor, I've heard that um, part of where, what would you say, the money has gone, the wealth has gone is into um, schlepping lower classes in third world countries out of poverty? And I I didn't know what to make of this explanation.
1: Well, I mean, globalization has driven manufacturing jobs to the periphery, but we don't find mass unemployment in the United States. I mean, in the United States today, the unemployment rate is something like 2.5%, you know? So it's not like all the jobs have been lost and no one can find a job. Mm -hmm. People have simply shifted jobs. They've shifted from jobs in manufacturing to jobs in in the service sector, not the servant sector, but the service sector. Now, you know, an archetypical case of that might be someone who used to work at the paint shop at an auto factory, painting cars. Uh, Their job was automated or sent overseas to Mexico Uh, And that person then would get a job at a home improvement warehouse, advising people on paint for their homes, right? The guy knows paint. Why not work at the home improvement warehouse? Now in reality, in Detroit, that would result in a uh, 50% or maybe 60% decline in wages, the loss of health care benefits, the loss of health insurance, and the loss of a pension. And People say, oh, see, globalization caused this loss. I said, no, 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 no. The problem is not globalization. The problem is that the old job was a unionized job Mm -hmm. which drove up wages and which the union demanded health insurance and pensions versus the new job is in a non-unionized environment uh, that has the ability to hire and fire at will uh, with no expectation of providing health care or pension. Uh, The problem isn't the the kind of job the person's doing. There's nothing inherently more, There's nothing inherent in painting a car body that would give you health insurance versus advising on paint in a store that would not. Uh, you, you know, what the inherent in this is the inherent in, in the policy changes that happened, not in the change of job.
0: So people, to people sort of happen to be moving more from unionized jobs to non-unionized jobs as a result of manufacturing going offshore?
1: No, I don't think it's a matter of one kind of job is inherently unionized and the other is not. It's a matter that in the early 1970s, policies changed to make unionization much more difficult. So when people shifted from old established industries that were already unionized, auto sector, into new emerging industries, those new emerging industries did not unionize because it was very difficult in the 1970s to form unions. And it continues to be today, uh, very difficult to form unions. And that's, that's,
0: okay, so the the difficulty forming unions, I can see how that's the relevant factor here. The other thing you said was um, you think the entrance of women into the labor force.
1: Yeah, Yeah. I think when you go to the micro level, so people who study this at the macro level, number of women entering the workforce compared to wages, Uh they say, oh, there's a connection. At the same time that women have entered the workforce, wages have stagnated. But when you go to the micro level and look at specific job titles, you find that Women before 1970 uh, were working. Uh, it was professional occupations that did not have women in them. Um, but there were plenty of women working in diners, working as nurses, working as cleaners, working, you know, working as maids, you know, So uh, working as hairdressers. Right? So working class women were working before 1970. It was professional women who were excluded. So women were excluded from professions like law, medicine, mm-hmm. you know, university teaching. Uh, when those jobs opened up to women, professional women transitioned from, uh, or professionally educated women transitioned from, frankly, being housewives—you uh, know, far, you know, highly skilled housewives—to being instead skilled doctors, lawyers, professors. Uh, but those aren't the professions that had declining, <laughs> stagnant wages. The, the, the professions where wages stagnated. Were professions where what, women were already in the workforce. So for example, if you compare specific uh, job titles in the United States, uh, for women-dominated jobs like uh, nurse, cleaner, elementary school teacher, uh, those jobs have had no increase in wages. As those, those have experienced the same stagnation as typical male jobs uh, over the last 45 years. Mm-hmm. So you can't say that stagnation in nurses' incomes was due to women entering the workforce because nurses were already women right. you know, it, it, it before that point. You know, same with hairdressers. Same, you know, um, the stagnation has occurred in those job categories that already had women. Those job categories that opened to women have not had wage stagnation. So the lawyers, the doctors, the executives, you know, public relations executives—those those jobs that suddenly became available to women. I mean, the advertising industry is a good example. It used to be, if you watch, you know, Mad Men or something, an all-male preserve. You know, now the advertising industry is not an all-female preserve, but advertising and public relations are now female-dominated. Sure. Uh, but these aren't low-wage professions that have had long-term uh, stagnation in wages these are high income professions right so so the the, the the explanation that women entering the workforce kept down wages in developed countries falls apart when you look at the micro level of the actual job categories women are doing
0: help me out here There's, like everything you're saying makes sense but to, to flip this on its head why is it then that when suddenly, there was a massive um, glut in the pool of, of lawyers and doctors that those wages weren't driven down by simple...
1: Oh, look, they, they may have been made lower than they otherwise would have been. Okay. I, I can't argue the counterfactual. What I can argue is those are not the jobs that have had stagnant wages.
0: Okay.
1: Um, you know, whether they're lower than they otherwise would have been, whether women entering the workforce actually made the rise in inequality less than it might otherwise have been, you know, I, I don't know. But I do know that it doesn't explain the long-term stagnation in wages for the working class.
0: Fair. Um, let's let's move on. Wait, actually, before we move on, I want to I want to just hear the 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 effect of this, the flow-on effect, right? So in the '70s, the America in America, the way you have it, um, there's this ideological um, victory, a uh, sort of yeah. conservative. Um, yeah. And if I can interject, sure.
1: There was not that victory in Australia. So Australian wages continued to rise. Uh, Throughout the 1970s, '80s and '90s, and Australian wage stagnation only dates to the Howard era of the early 2000s. Uh, you know, so this is something that if you take a comparative perspective, you can see the different trajectories in different countries, uh, resulting from different policy sets. Um, you know, those American sociologists who study this only within the. US miss out on the fact that you know, Australia globalized, and yet Australia did not have, Australia lost its manufacturing jobs, but people went into service industry jobs that were also unionized and Fair Work Australia set a minimum floor on wages that was very, very high. Everyone in Australia has universal health insurance, which was created in the 1970s, right? So Australia went down the road of providing more and more universal uh, benefits, universal health insurance for a while, universal university education. Uh, you know, Whereas the U.S. started to pull back from those benefits.
0: And so, to you, that was there was a sort of ideological vanguard leading the inequality in each of these places, like the from. Yes, ideology came yes.
1: and that ideological vanguard famously is associated with the University of Chicago uh, and the Chicago Graduate School of Business, uh, you know, Milton Friedman and, and the mm-hmm. whole uh, group around the University of Chicago, uh, but also more broadly in, in the American, uh, in the American ruling and intellectual class. And we have to anglo-american.
0: So is there in your in your view, is there any way to put the uh put put the what the can of worms back in the box to horribly mango metaphors?
1: Yeah, democracy. Uh, and this is what you know really is behind the motivation, not only of my my latest book uh, on the new authoritarianism, but also a previous book, 16 for 16: a progressive agenda for a better America. You know, both books are really motivated by the ideal that ultimately you know, more democracy is the key. I mean, you know, political thinkers going all the way back to, uh, well, to to Plato, uh, you know, have been warning of the perils of democracy because in a democracy, you know, the rabble, that is ordinary people, will tend to vote for policies that benefit them. And, you know, the, the fear is that they will take away the uh, wealth of the wealthy and redistribute it to you know, ordinary people and and you know Plato argued that safeguards have to be well Plato argued that people should not be given this power Aristotle argued that well democracy is probably inevitable but there should be safeguards mm-hmm. in place to prevent this kind of expropriation you know in my view the you know greater democracy uh, is the you know ultimately the only answer uh, to to you. Know, putting the, the the worms back in the bottle, as you say, the genie back in the bottle, the worms in the can. Uh, you know, people can vote for politicians, for parties and for policies uh, that would reverse this enormous rise in inequality.
0: Okay, so let's talk about people uh, voting in that respect. Um, and especially in the light of your, your new book, um, there seems to have been a sense in which... Uh, a lot of pundits, at least in the last election, were talking about uh, there being no good choice on the on the ballot and people voting for Trump as a kind of angry protest against the entire system. Right. Is that a characterization that you would agree with?
1: I, I think it's it's roughly true. It's you know uh, you know you can't say why people quote unquote vote for something because there are two hundred million people voting, uh, but certainly the popularity of Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders uh, on. The two sides was very much driven uh, by a populist groundswell of people wanting non-conventional choices. Uh, I think Bernie Sanders came very close to winning the Democratic nomination, and had it not had it not been for the uh, pre-existence of Hillary Clinton as an anointed candidate—that right. is, the, the candidate who who had almost won in two thousand eight and who was thus promised her chance in in. Uh, 2016. Had it not been for the presence of Hillary Clinton on the ballot, uh, Bernie Sanders would have swept away all of the other conventional Democratic candidates. And I think that the 2016 election could have been extraordinarily cathartic for the American political system if it had thrown up a populist on each side. Mm-hmm. If if there had been the conservative populism of Donald Trump versus the progressive populism of Bernie Sanders, then I think we could have seen a, a, a real. Groundswell of popular engagement in the election. Uh, instead, we had kind of this, you know, half, uh, half-complete revolution or a, a revolution that got stuck, because in, in 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 my telling of democracy, what should have happened, and I don't mean should in a moral sense. I mean should in a in a mechanical sense under any ordinary circumstances. Had, had Hillary Clinton not previously been very closely defeated by Barack Obama, had there not been this looming Clinton dynasty, in any other circumstance, we would have had Donald Trump versus Bernie Sanders. And I think we would have had an overwhelming Bernie Sanders victory uh, that would have paved the way for policies that would dramatically reduce inequality. Uh, That said, some of Donald Trump's most popular policies have been those that were endorsed by Bernie Sanders. So for example, well, both of them promise to pull out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Uh, both of them promise to uh, be more aggressive in promoting American manufacturing. Uh, you know, these have been you know, some of the things that uh, Donald Trump has been popular for. Uh, Donald Trump's tax cut plan, which reinforces inequality, Donald Trump's tax cut plan is, is going to be a disaster for well for it's it, well disaster depends on your politics. It's going to dramatically increase inequality in America. Uh, his tax cut plan was not particularly. Popular. That's something that, you know, he did for his Republican base, not to win the next election. Uh, but, you know, his actions on trade and on uh, reviving manufacturing, uh, on uh, generally loose fiscal policy. So uh, Trump is not pushing a Republican style balanced budget. Instead, he has... Uh, whatever the rhetoric, he has uh, very much endorsed a loose fiscal policy that will increase, lead to higher levels of employment, which has led to higher levels of employment and rising wages for the first time since the 1990s in the United States. Uh, you know, those are all things that Bernie Sanders would have done as well. Now, Bernie Sanders would have done it with much different language, <laughs> in a much different spirit. Uh, the infrastructure plan, we're still waiting to hear about Trump's, uh, you know, multi trillion dollar infrastructure plan. It hasn't happened yet. I think it will happen between now uh, and the 2020 elections. Um, but that infrastructure plan is, you know, very much what Bernie Sanders was talking about. Now, uh, you know, don't get me wrong, Donald Trump is no Bernie Sanders. Uh, and the style is very different and his true priorities are very different. But I think the forces that got him elected are fundamentally the same forces that would have got Bernie Sanders elected.
0: Right. What, what, what do you recognize as true priorities?
1: Well, sorry. What do I reckon? You
0: said his true priorities are very different.
1: Oh well, I think Donald Trump's number one priority is simply to be president of the United States. Uh, my, <laughs> you know, my own evaluation of Donald Trump is that uh, uh, he craves the the recognition that comes with well, with any achievement, and you can't get a higher level of achievement than being president of the United States in today's world. Uh, you know, he, he couldn't marry Prince Harry. So the next best thing was to, uh, <laughs> to, to run for president. Um, like well, I guess now he could marry Prince Harry, but Prince Harry probably wasn't interested. Sure. Uh, I, you know, I see his motives as being very much driven by ego. And I think people who look for his motives in profit are, are really missing the point. I mean, I don't think Donald Trump is setting policy in order to benefit his you know, hotel in Beijing or something like that. But does he want to have the biggest ego in the world? I, I think very much so. And I think his policies are very much geared towards that. Now, for that, he also has to practically maintain majorities in Congress and you know, get legislation passed and you know, get things done. And, and you know, he works with the Republican Party because he is a Republican and Republicans do have a majority in Congress. And the tax cut plan was fundamentally a, you know, Bread and butter Republican agenda. Republican presidents, you know, George Bush had two rounds of major tax cuts. Ronald Reagan had major tax cuts. Uh, George Bush the Elder uh, was not reelected precisely because he went back on his pledge, read my lips, no new taxes. And he was the only Republican president in decades to increase taxes. And look what it got him it, it got him out of office. So, you know. A lot of Donald Trump's policies will be pragmatic, as any president's policies have to be. But but his overall agenda, I think, is very much uh, self-aggrandizement. Uh, I think he wants to be president and he wants to stay in power.
0: Whereas Bernie Sanders? I think Bernie
1: Sanders is very much driven by concern for ordinary Americans and, and a very much, you know, I, I don't know either man, uh, but I strongly suspect that, that you know, Bernie Sanders has consistently uh, fought for policies that are in the interests of the overwhelming majority of Americans and and I think we can take I I I I am not the only one who thinks we could take that at face value I think virtually everybody takes that at face value
0: It's hard to look at him and go but what he really
1: are <laughs> Yeah I don't I don't detect a lot of uh, evil Ulterior motives, uh, you know, behind the Bernie Sanders campaign.
0: Why did you use that word when you when you talked about the possibility of uh, a Sanders Trump twenty sixteen You said a catharsis for the American political system.
1: Yeah, I, I really think that uh, we need democracy works best when people have clear choices, mm-hmm. and clear choices require that. You know, Republicans be Republicans and Democrats be Democrats, and then people can choose between them. And I think if we had had a straight up election of a Republican billionaire who wants to reduce taxes in the wealthy and a you know Democratic socialist uh, who you lives in a small apartment who wants to you know sock it to the wealthy and spend lots of money on the poor, uh, I think we could have had a a real election on the issues. Mm-hmm. Instead, we had an election on the personalities. Mm-hmm. Uh, the 2016 election was not decided on the policy platforms and the likely behavior in office of, of Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. It was decided on which do you hate or loathe more, Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump. And you know, it, it, by a, a squeaker, uh, you know, more people decided they disliked Donald Trump. But more voters in the right districts decided they disliked Hillary Clinton. And as a result, Trump won the presidency. Uh, you know, the election was not fought on the issues. It was fought on the personalities. And, right. you know, I, I think democracy functions well when elections are fought on the issues. Uh, and I think a lot of the reason we've had, a lot of the reason democracy has not functioned well in America uh, from, you know, 1970 to 2016 uh, is that most elections have not been fought on the issues? I think there has been an elite consensus. The, the elite consensus that all my colleagues, that most of my colleagues, hark back to as a good thing. Bipartisanship, we all work together to have good policy, you know, consensus-driven politics, you know, don't insult each other. I think that's given us terrible policies for ordinary Americans. Uh, you know, I, I don't think elite consensus is good for democracy. I think elites battling it out in the public arena is good for democracy. That's interesting. Uh, the elite consensus of the last forty-five or fifty years uh, has given us you know, no choice. Hobson's choice democracy, where uh, no matter who you elect, uh, taxes are going to go down, regulation for the wealthy, yeah. uh, deregulation is going to be the basic order of the day. Uh, you know. Policies that uh, eviscerate unions and working people's, uh, you know, ability to organize are, are going to, uh, uh, you know, those are going to disintegrate. Uh, you know, you can see it in the United States. You can see it in Australia. The Howard government in Australia implemented uh, voluntary unionism. It got rid of the idea that, you know, if you worked in a unionized workplace, you had to join the union. Mm-hmm. A labor government, labor as in Unions in Australia, you know, who supported the Labour Party, uh, kicked uh, Howard out of power. And, uh, but did Kevin Rudd restore the closed shop whereby people would be forced to join unions? Absolutely not. He left in place the open shop. Right? So both sides in Australian politics since the late 1990s endorsed the same neoliberal approach you know Kevin Rudd may write essays in foreign affairs in which he says neoliberalism is dead as he wrote in 2008 but his policies continue this is basically the same neoliberal approaches as the uh, Howard government why is that my own view is that it has to do with elite consensus around a uh, driven by their coalescence in a single social class. Uh, If we think of, you know, if you think in your head of of the the stereotypical Mm do-gooder, you know, uh, someone who, you know, works for an NGO uh, rescuing poor children in Africa, you you'll probably imagine it's a woman and you'll probably imagine she's married to a banker, lawyer, or management consultant uh, who's male, (laughs) right? And this kind of You know, the idea that that people who are battling for social justice and people who uh, want deregulation for banks, the idea that these are different people, well, they are different people, but they're generally the same family. Now, now, it may not fit that paradigm of the husband and wife, but believe me, there are plenty of those, uh, plenty of those couples, power couples where the the husband's a banker and the wife is an activist. but even when it doesn't, they're, they're people from the same social backgrounds. They're sure. people who, you know, both, you know, couples who went to Harvard and Yale and met at Harvard and or Yale uh, or at Harvard Business School or at Yale Law School. And, you know, and if they're not literally couples, well, they're brothers and they're sisters and they're best friends. Uh, you know, human rights activists are able to raise money because their classmates also went to Harvard, but their classmates are making money in banking. Uh, the idea that these are that these people form uh, different social classes is, is simply wrong. Uh, they're part of the same expert class, and thus, you know, the title of my book, "The New Authoritarianism: uh, Trump, Populism, and the Tyranny of Experts," or in the original title, "The Tyranny of the Expert Class." Uh, you know, focuses on this idea that you know, people who are members of this class uh, want socially progressive policies. But they also want economically conservative policies, and these go hand in hand much more than we might like to admit. Uh, you know, I, I dare, I dare predict, without looking at the data, that Greens in Australia, on average, have higher income than the rest of the population, or higher income than Coalition voters. Mm-hmm. Um, not because there's something evil about them or because I don't like Greens or something like that, but just because you know, a concern with environmentalism and social activism of the type pursued by the Green Party tends to be concentrated among high income people, not concentrated among workers and unions and workers associations. Sure. Right? And you know, that's really the, the the big story is this, this confluence or coalescence uh, of, a, uh, of an elite class who dominate the policy debate uh, they have different flavors you know they do fight over over things but um you know but it's hard to find a banker who doesn't support gay marriage mm. just like it's hard to find a gay marriage activist uh, who really supports uh, the power of unions you know it, 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 there's one there somewhere i'm sure but you know, the, the, the idea that bankers and, and human rights activists are somehow opposed to each other is just wrong. Uh, you know, these tend to be the same people or at least the same families or statistically speaking from the same people, the same income level, okay. same educational background. So
0: when, when you say uh, what's good for democracy is elites battling it out in the public arena, yeah. what, what sprung to mind, I have no idea if this is what you were thinking of, what sprung to mind was um, William Buckley's Crossfire. Yeah. which seems to be the last time when, I mean, to my, to my very uneducated mind, when that was happening. What's, what's, the, what's the idea look like to you? Well, let me give
1: you a different paradigm. Uh, sure. We hear a lot of talk today about fake news uh-huh. and the problem that uh, the gatekeepers, New York Times, Washington Post, CNN, the gatekeepers no longer control uh, the debate and no longer have control over what's perceived as news. Uh, and somehow that's automatically assumed to be bad. You know, the idea that newspapers should be partisan, that Fox News should be super right wing, uh, but you know, MSNBC might be super left wing. And somehow that's that's wrong. We don't want these battles. What we want is a consensus around, around what's true that can then be told to people as you know, this is the truth. That to me is anathema. I would go back instead. To the the height, the most robust periods in, in democracy. So go back to uh, the pre-war era in the US, you know, maybe the immediate post-war period in the UK, when you know entire news outlets were owned by people who had a political point of view. You know, you could read the daily. Uh, Express and get one world, or you could read the Manchester Guardian and <laughs> get an entirely different world. Right, Manchester Guardian being the workers' newspaper, and the Daily Express being the bankers' newspaper, or something like that. You know, you know in the U.S., you know, you had, uh, you know, if if you watch a movie like Citizen Kane, you, you know, you get an idea of like the power of newspaper owners, how their idiosyncratic. Programs you know, shaped how they peddled the news, and of course there was diversity. So, you know, in New York, a hundred years ago in New York, there were probably you know, ten or twelve daily newspapers, right? Each of them peddling a different take. Well, that's what we now have emerging today in the blogosphere, right? We have these, this, these dozens of different takes on reality and on what's good social policy. I think that's fantastic for democracy. You know, I, I don't think. I don't think the New York, the dominance of the New York Times is what democracy needs. I think a dozen competing newspapers is what democracy needs. Not one version of the truth, which is very much what we had in the United States. I mean, I'm American, so I can talk to US examples. Throughout the 1970s, 80s, 90s, we had one version of the news. It was the consensus version of the three major broadcast networks. And if ABC, CBS, and NBC Took a line on something that was the line, line. and they all knew each other. The the reporters for these three networks were all friends with each other. They all went to the same, you know, the 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 the, the same brises and the same baptisms. Uh, (laughs) You you know, uh, it, it, it they they were part of a unified social class that presented a consensus version of reality to the world. Now, I'll admit that consensus version of reality was closer to reality <laughs> than a lot of what you see on Fox News or a lot of what you see you know, in, the, in the Socialist Register or the blogosphere. But accuracy, accurate knowledge of the world is not necessarily what makes for a well-functioning democracy. Diversity of viewpoint makes for a well-functioning democracy, at least in my view. Uh, thus, I, I get very impatient with my political science colleagues who tell me that you know, what democracy requires uh, you know, is this you know dependable elite consensus on reality on real facts, not fake facts? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I say absolutely not. What, what democracy needs is a real battle of ideas where people can hear what's on offer. You know, I and mean, if you think about it today, aside from Bernie Sanders calling himself a socialist, entire realms of debate are simply off limits. I mean, for example, uh, should we have free trade or controlled trade? For hundreds of years, it was a matter of massive debate tariffs or no tariffs. Mm -hmm. Suddenly, by the 2000s, it's become something that, you know, if you advocate for tariffs, you're relegated to the lunatic fringe. You can't have a place on a major broadcast network, or a major newspaper, or even a position at a, at a respectable university, because it's no longer a respectable, intellectually respectable point of view. Like
0: the Overton window just moved past it.
1: it the what moved
0: past it? The Overton window, the range of acceptable- oh,
1: I don't know the phrase, <laughs> but yes. Uh, yeah, you know, And whether that's on tariff policy, on taxation, mm-hmm. if anyone today proposed a 90% tax on high incomes, that would be a non-starter. I mean, not a non-starter because wealthy people would oppose it. A non-starter because the entire expert class would unify in ridiculing it, would not allow it into their newspapers, journals, websites, uh, and TV shows. You know, it simply would not be part of the acceptable policy debate. Unions are no longer part of the acceptable policy debate. People roll their eyes when you mention unions and say, oh yeah, that you know, back in the 1970s, how awful life was in the UK when everyone was in a union. And I point out to them, no, no, in the 1970s, life was great for working class people in the UK. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was a pain in the ass if you were a professional and your business was constantly being disrupted by some strike or other. Uh, but the working class never had it so good right. uh, as in the 1970s in the UK. Uh, you know and, and so like these these kind of these policy options high taxes on the wealthy protective tariffs, unionization uh very high minimum wages uh, you know these were simply not part of the debate anymore because a class of experts has decided and I think strongly influenced by their own self interest is my own view, but they would say no no, no it's all peer reviewed it's all science it's all You know, there's consensus around these things. Uh, You know, I think a class of experts has taken options off the table. And I think what we need is a Citizen Kane to, you know, take his newspaper and use it to put options back on the table.
0: Even if those options are wildly inaccurate?
1: Well, that's the that's the trick, isn't it? I I mean, my my sensible idea is your crazy proposal. Uh, And how do we adjudicate that? Right. I, I mean, what's a, what's false news? What's a false false fact? I mean, there's certain things that are obviously false when pointed out, and I think that people are. We have to hope that in if we're going to have democracy at all, we have to simply accept that when a falsehood, when a blatant falsehood is pointed out, that people recognize it as a falsehood. You know, so when Donald Trump says, "My doctor has certified that I am." I think the word was uh, amazingly healthy or uh, unbelievably healthy, something like that. You know that people shrug their shoulders and like, think, "Yeah, that's just Donald Trump blustering." Mm-hmm. But to you know, if someone says there are uh, if someone says there are five million temporary visa holders in Australia, and we can quickly check the government statistics and find out there are two point two million temporary visa holders in Australia, I think those kind of fake facts can easily be corrected.
0: But, do but there are they?
1: Really? Oh, oh, but I think those fake facts are irrelevant, right? I mean, rarely does political debate turn on that. Instead, for instance, in the Brexit debate in the UK, uh, the Brexit, the 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 leave side mm-hmm. gave some estimates of what they thought the government savings would be on leaving the European Union. Uh, the Remain side called that a fake fact because, it. you know, and they tried to label it as fake facts, fake news. Now, you know... Is my profession, not my, is one person's professional judgment of the savings from leaving the UK fake or is it just one you disagree with, right? Or, and of course, the remainder said it's one that the, uh, the, char, you know, the, 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 the Association of Chartered Accountants disagrees with, right? Like we go to a source, you know, the Congressional Budget Office disagrees with this estimate. You know the Center for Budget and Policy prior, Policy Priorities disagrees with this estimate, and thus it's fake, right? I think then we have to be very, you know, I, I think we have to be very careful not to stifle debate uh, by throwing around this idea that you know an opinion we disagree with
0: mm-hmm.
1: is fake or you know somehow not legitimate. And that's what the expert class has done. It's it's taken its ability to say, you know, we're the guardians of truth. And the expert class has used that position as guardians of truth far beyond their actual mandate. Uh, So for example, when when economists routinely tell you that, you know, if you raise the minimum wage, there'll be job losses. And and someone who studied this, the evidence for that is extremely tenuous. There's virtually no evidence of job losses resulting from higher minimum wages. Really? Yet, okay. like Nobel Prize winning economists are willing to state it as a known fact of economics. Well, you know, that's a problem, right? I mean, if, if the Nobel Prize winning economist tells me that US GDP per capita this year is $55,209, okay, I can now verify that. <laughs> see <laughs> yeah, if that's yeah. correct. but when he when he makes a, a, a judge the problem is, the problem is that experts are are willing routinely to portray their judgments as facts. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's really a problem. and you know, yes, many of the claims made on the other side are completely loony. but you know if we're going to believe in democracy, we have to believe in people's, you know, sense to be able to smell a, a loony idea.
0: So what's the way forward from
1: here? I, I, first of all, I think the internet's fantastic. The internet opens up uh, these debates. It, it creates spaces for people. Uh, if I were going to regulate, I would absolutely prohibit Google and Facebook from making decisions about what will be presented to people as knowledge. Uh, of course, the trend is entirely the opposite direction. Google and Facebook are being held to account for allowing people to see quote unquote fake news, right? So I think very soon, well, Facebook already has clamped down and won't show you things in the Facebook feed that their algorithms have decided uh, are not acceptable. You know, I think that's a real problem. Um, so my own hope is that the internet would create a space for people to challenge hegemonic discourses for, you know, you to have a podcast that can compete uh, with, you know, the New York Times podcast, right? I mean, why not? You're both on the internet. And the problem is going to be that the expert class is uh, likely, is already using its leverage over companies, the companies that manage the internet, over the Googles and Facebooks of the world uh, to only present their point of view. So the fact that, you know, your podcast is online is irrelevant if a Google search won't turn it up. And that's, and that I see as the biggest threat.
0: Right. I was thinking about this, actually, on the way here. Uh, specifically, I was thinking about the way that, to, to, to sort of circle back around, the way that the social credit system in China kind of ensures that the party keeps functioning as, as, as a sort of mechanism at the top, even if, regardless of what sort of individual members do. And I'm thinking now kind of of this expert class, as this hegemonic thing, where I suppose if anyone were to defect... They'd be treated as a, as a heretic in some sense. As a pariah. Yeah, as a pariah. Uh,
1: and you know China is a good example of this because China has been lauded uh, among many uh, American uh, and West, Western liberals as being a kind of paradise where social policy is being made by experts based on expert judgment without all that mess of Democracy. Uh, I mean, witness the word the,
0: technocracy itself. Well,
1: technocracy. I mean, witness the contrast in uh, early to tw- January 2017, when Xi Jinping went to speak at the Davos World Economic Forum about his embrace of free trade. And then a week later, Donald Trump's inauguration at in which his speech condemned free trade. Okay. Uh, the expert class overwhelmingly applauded Xi Jinping and you know, he's going to be the new savior versus this Subversive Donald Trump. No, no, I, I, I would like. I, I couldn't believe it. Well, I could believe it. I, I was still in shock. Asking people to step back a minute. You know, you're embracing uh, the leader of a undemocratic communist dictatorship because of his liberal policies <laughs> over the leader of a, a democratic country because you don't like his policies, you know, and I think that's a real problem And people start to have that sense of class solidarity. I mean, the the American, British, you know, Australian, Western ruling class has absolutely no problem doing business with China. It's very easy to do business with China because China is run by this technocratic elite. And, you know, know, Kevin Rudd uh, is a big fan of the way things are done in China. And, you know, he seems to be very comfortable. Uh, dealing with China on China's terms and believing that Australia should uh, accept China for what it is, you know, much more uh, because Kevin Rudd is also a member of this technocratic class. Of course, before being a politician, he was a, a, a top bureaucrat. Right. Um, you know, to me as a, as a Democrat, I find this shocking. You know, I, I, I mean, I want you know, I'd rather have a bad democracy than a fantastic dictatorship. I don't want Plato's uh, guardians, you know, ruling the world in the best interests of the world. Uh, I'd rather accept an imperfect democracy where you know politics is messy, where things go wrong sometimes, uh, you know, but where everything is open to debate and you know we can fight it out in, in the public arena.
0: Okay. So looking ahead, what's uh, what assuming things go well, really well over the next decade. Like, what's your vision of the next election? What's your vision of a better world?
1: Well, if you mean the U.S. election, I'd, sure. I'd love—well, uh, uh, there are elections everywhere. Yeah, you know. but the relevant uh, one. Uh, well, you said it, not me. Uh, in in the U.S. election, uh, you know, I would love to see a you know a either Bernie Sanders or a Bernie Sanders type candidate uh, uh, against Donald Trump. Uh, not only do I think that would. Probably result in the victory of the Bernie Sanders type candidate, uh, but I think it would also push the Trump administration farther towards good policy. Uh, you know, it, it, to meet the challenge. Uh, you know, if if Hillary Clinton comes back to run against Trump again, there would be little incentive for Trump to push his two trillion dollar infrastructure program. Mm-hmm. But if his opponent is on the Campaign trail, talking about his new plans for massive new infrastructure. Well, that'll really push Trump to do it as well. Uh, you know, I mean, we forget that Richard Nixon, of all people, created the Environmental Protection Agency <laughs> in the United States, not because he was an environmentalist, uh, but because he was under pressure from environmentalists who could, you know, win votes against him, give their votes to to the other side, right? Um, you know, so that's what I really like to see. Uh, now, if I had my preference, I'd like to see both major parties have. Uh, more sane, uh, more well-spoken candidates, uh, but who were you know from the wings of their party, not from the centers of their party. Uh, you know, and, and I can't come back to this enough. The whole idea that what we need is more middle-of-the-road centrism is a, you know, is a liberal fantasy land. Uh, middle of the road centrism, not, not fantasy because it'll never happen. Fancy because it's a fancy that it would actually be good. Uh, Democracy doesn't work best when everyone comes to the middle and we elect centrists to govern in a consensus way for the good of all. Democracy works well when we have stark choices to make and we make the choices we want. It's very difficult for an average voter who spends only a few minutes a year on public policy questions to differentiate between the center left and the center right. And if there's no differentiation, there's no democracy. On the other hand, anybody who just listens to a few TV ads uh, can tell the difference between a Bernie Sanders and a Donald Trump and can tell which one they want uh, as their president, uh, you know, and which set of policies they want for their country. I think those kind of stark choices are really necessary. And my hope is that we'll get those kind of stark choices in the US and that other countries will have those kind of stark choices too. I, let me point to the 2017 uh, parliamentary elections in the UK. Mm-hmm. In 2016, the UK voted for Brexit by a 52 to 48 margin. And the pundit class, uh, you know, the, the, the whole uh, class of experts, uh, first considered that the wrong decision. Uh, and second, viewed it as something that uh, ruined British politics, that the 2017 elections resulted in a hung parliament uh, because, you know, Brexit was, over, was the big issue behind the country and people were angry that the vote had gone for Brexit and thus Theresa May lost her majority and, you know, and all this. Um, that's to fail to look at the numbers. Um, the UK in 2017 ended up with a hung parliament and a reduced majority for Theresa May. But in fact, the vote of the Conservative Party went up by 10 percentage points. Right, she went up from thirty to forty percent of the vote. The vote for the Labour Party went up by—I forget—I think it was something like twelve or fifteen percentage points. Um, what the twenty—it just so happened that because of the actual, you know, complicated way the election system works, it resulted in a majority for no one. Right, um, but in fact, the vote of the two major parties, both of whose candidates campaigned on Brexit. Uh, That that is, in 2017, both Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn embraced Brexit. Uh, The vote of the two major parties dramatically increased. In fact, it's the highest vote for the two major parties in the UK election, if you combine the two together, of any election since I think it's 1972. Uh, Since 1972, third parties, fourth parties have done very well in the UK because people felt they didn't have a choice between the two major parties. But starting in 2017, The conservatives were conservative, (laughs) the laborites were were socialist. And so people had a clear choice and they returned to voting for those two major parties. So I view the 2017 election in the UK as something very hopeful for democracy. Yes, by sheer coincidence, it resulted in a position where nobody had a majority. Um, But in terms of voter engagement and voters returning to the two big parties and, you know, voters giving up on the sterile parties, you know, the parties that were never going to be in government. I mean, the the Liberal Democratic Party was virtually wiped out. The, The UK Independence Party was wiped out. The Scottish Nationalist Party saw a major reduction in its vote, right? These parties that were not on that battle between conservative and progressive, but instead had idiosyncratic positions on specific issues, they were wiped out in the 2017 election. Uh, because the two big parties offered a clear alternative of you know old-fashioned traditional conservatives versus old-fashioned traditional socialists <laughs> and people went to the polls and droves to vote for them so that's uh... that's a huge success and I'd like to see something like that in the us uh, a you know a socialist democrat versus a conservative Republican uh, which I think would you know, then uh, you know, pull out the voters and give a clear choice for the future. Uh, whether or not whether or not that happens in, in twenty twenty is questionable because Donald Trump will probably be the candidate of the Republican Party. You never know. Uh, in in twenty twenty four, that's my big hope is that will that people in both parties will be sufficiently convinced by that point that they need to run, you know, real you know blue bodied candidates uh, for their own side. Uh, that hopefully we'll see a real election. Uh, you know, I, I mean, imagine if the 2016 election had been Hillary Clinton versus Jeb Bush. Oh, God. Okay, and a rematch of the of, of 20 years of U.S. politics. Nobody would have gone out to vote, <laughs> right? I mean, it's just that simple. Um, same policies, same way of delivering those policies, you know, same basic consensus, around how the world works, well, that's the liberal consensus, the expert class consensus of how the world works. Um, Nothing to choose. Uh, With 2016, we got a semi-choice. My hope is that in 2020, we'll get a real choice. And I have faith that in 2024, both parties will have learned the lesson that to energize people and to get them out to the polls, you have to offer them a real choice. And my hope is that the next generation of political candidates in the US uh, will be very much motivated to uh, to put forward very you know, trenchant, uh, you know, deeply felt points of view, and let the voters decide. Salvador, it's been a pleasure. Thanks, General Ike. My pleasure to be on the podcast.
0: Kenny. This is General Ike, Building Jerusalem.